You're listening to the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ. I'm Trevaney. And I'm Will. And we'll be taking you behind the curtain of the AI hype, exploring what it is and what it isn't capable of. On today's episode, we're talking about how AI affects us in the everyday, exploring the many ways it impacts our current and future selves. Well, we talk a lot on this podcast about AI and industry and business and all these like crazy fractionalized use cases. And I think we forget a lot of the time about the AI that's literally all around us. Yeah, that's that's the good stuff. Right? It's like the AI in the everyday that we don't even remember is there. So, for example, spam filtering, right? All sorts of junk gets sent into my spam filter every day. And that's just, at the base of it, a good machine learning model. So I don't know. I think it's worth exploring all the different ways that we have AI doing things for us without us even realizing it. Yeah, and I think all this technological innovation is super exciting, but we've also talked plenty on this podcast about the risks that are inherent in AI too. And I think just like there are risks to businesses productionalizing AI, there are also risks to individual humans who are interacting with AI in the everyday. Oh yeah, when you think about facial recognition and all sorts of other potential mal uses or misuses of AI, it does get a little scary quickly. So what are we to do? Now we're going to try something different on this podcast. We usually either have a guest or we, we talk about things, but I want us to go through a day in the life, just a normal human being living their lives in the first world and think about all the different ways AI is affecting them, affecting their behavior, and maybe how they're affecting broader AI patterns as well. Yeah, but Trevaney, whose day do you want to talk about? I think we should choose Anna, our producer. That sounds like a great idea. Anna's going to hate us afterwards. Okay, so let's get started. So Anna is a typical millennial New Yorker, and when she wakes up in the morning, she goes into the kitchen to heat up some oatmeal for breakfast. Now, oatmeal has a lot of different nuances to it. It's a finicky breakfast food. It is a finicky breakfast food. Gotta get it just right. Exactly. And so she doesn't always know what's the right amount to, to microwave this this oatmeal for, but luckily she has an Amazon microwave. Mm. So I don't know if you know this, but Amazon has put out a microwave that is actually linked to Alexa. It enables the microwave itself to know things that we may not know ourselves. So like an intelligent microwave, you're saying? Yeah, actually, like a Internet of Things kind of microwave. And so Anna says, hey, Alexa, heat up my oatmeal. Alexa will look it up and heat up the oatmeal perfectly. And Anna never has to worry about knowing what the right settings are, what the right time limit is, none of that. So this is a, a simple example, I think, but it's funny because it reminds me of what we talked about, I think, last week where we were talking about the definition of AI. And you may recall that I argued that AI doesn't really need to be super sophisticated. It could be as simple as a plain decision rule, which I think is kind of what's going on here, right? Like all Alexa needs to do is, yeah, it needs to do some voice recognition which is pretty sophisticated. But once Alexa listens to Anna and Alexa knows, okay, heat up oatmeal, that's the one word Alexa has to listen for, then it just goes into its database and it says, okay, oatmeal, 90 seconds maybe. So that's pretty simple, right? But I think the thing that's interesting to me about this is what's really kind of a trivial exercise on Amazon's part, still to us, I think rightfully so, seems like an intelligent experience. Anna's working with the microwave, it seems like, okay, this microwave knows something that I don't know. And that's interesting. I mean, again, this goes back to our, our discussion from a few weeks ago of like AI, is it really intelligence? What makes for intelligence? So once Alexa's learned the right setting for oatmeal, 
whether for Anna or for whoever, does Alexa really need to relearn that? But more importantly, does Anna ever need to learn that now? Right? Like what happens when she goes home to visit her parents and she's trying to heat up oatmeal but doesn't know what time to put it for? This seems like a real tragedy. Right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like this lack of, I mean, we're losing a little bit of knowledge. Yeah, I'm obviously being tongue in cheek. But no, I think that what you make is a good point, which is like, what does skill development mean in the age of AI? Right. So like if I can have Amazon or Alexa or whoever do sort of background tasks for me, then I never need to learn how to do them myself. Yeah, I think that the promise here is that AI is going to automate all the boring things like perfect oatmeal production. And instead, Anna is going to have all of this time and all these resources available to Anna to do the great things that we know that she can do, like be a great podcast producer. And while I'm not worried about Anna, because I know she's listening, I am worried about other people right, who are saying, I'm using AI or tech to automate the boring or trivial parts of my life. And instead, I'm going to use this free time to become a better human being. But I kind of feel like maybe I'm sounding like a crotchety old man. But instead, people are just using that free time to scroll through their AI-powered Instagram feeds. I feel like it's scary. AI is making us not need to know anything anymore. And we're just becoming automatons. But then not having to know everything can be helpful because then I, I have less things I need to keep in my head. And I'm saying you should have to keep some things in your head. I get what you're saying. Like, I just moved to a new city. And so I really don't know much about the area. It's completely brand new to me. But instead of having to like actually go out there and learn the roads and get lost and and figure out even what direction my house faces, right? I really don't have to do any of that. I can rely on Google Maps to take me anywhere I need to go, right? So you could argue, I see your point here that, wow, I don't know anything about my own city now. Yeah, you're losing touch with the culture of the neighborhood, losing touch with nature by relying on these algorithms to just direct you in your siloed life. Again, I'm now I'm being serious that maybe this is a tragedy, right? No, but then think about how many times are you lost and looking for something? And then you think, what did people do before Google yeah, Maps? Touche. When I'm visiting a foreign country or something, yeah, it's so much easier now. Exactly. So I think it's a trade-off, right? Like there are certain skills you do. I mean, I don't know if they're skills then, right? There are certain like boring things as humans that we really don't care about knowing, like how long to heat up oatmeal for. But that doesn't mean, that I guess, that we want to replace everything. I do want to go and learn my city, right? I want to know how to get to the grocery store if I don't have my phone on me. But I also don't want to have to do that. Yeah, and I think this will probably become a theme of this episode, which is kind of a PSA to our listeners to just be aware of AI and how it's influencing them. So if you're using AI to automate your oatmeal cooking, or if you're using AI to navigate the city and not actually taking the time to learn the streets yourself, like you're freeing up resources, time, your brain, what have you. So what are you doing with that freedom? How are you allocating that energy now? Hopefully you're putting it to good use and you're living a better life and you're making the world a better place. But I think it's easy to fall into this trap of essentially laziness. So I don't know. Maybe I just need to hold myself to a higher standard and maybe I'll set a better example for the world. That's nice of you, Will, because I scroll Instagram with all my free time. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best. But I want to get back to Anna. Yeah. Okay, so next up, she's powered by her oats. She's feeling good. And Anna, lovely Anna that she is, she doesn't drive to work. She doesn't even rely on public transit, really, but she's an avid city biker Ah. here in Manhattan. And so I want to talk also about city bike and how city bike is powered by, quote unquote, AI. I don't know if you're aware, but City Bike, 
the number of bikes they have in stations, uh, they're not just trying to keep the number of bikes in stations uniform at all times, but rather they're trying to be intelligent about it. So they're thinking about historical ridership data. They're thinking about day of the week, time of the day, upcoming weather forecasts. So they're taking into account multiple variables. And then according to all that information, all that data, they're actually shipping bikes to high demand stations from low demand stations. So I think this is an interesting point because to me, it kind of portends this broader idea of AI and how it's affecting land use and transportation and things that are really core to all of our lives. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when you think about it, you see a similar sort of pattern with Waze, right? This app that tells you how do you get to a place more efficiently, right? Mm -hmm. Someone has reported a traffic accident or, or, or hold up on Highway 95. So instead, you should take inner city route 201. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it actually can change the landscape of of the city, of the roads that that are being used, right? So Waze starts directing people to smaller, quiet inner city roads. And as a result, traffic on those roads goes up. And now you have new challenges where a place, someone bought a house that they thought would be quiet and out of the way is now suddenly this huge thoroughfare. So on that point, actually, in 2015, L.A., which is obviously a city that's notorious for its bad traffic, a lawmaker there kind of petitioned that the city take legal action against Waze for exactly the reasons that you're describing, right? People were leaving the highway, they were driving real fast to get to work or wherever they needed to go on what should have been these quiet residential back roads. And so the lawmaker said, this is dangerous, this is causing problems, this is not the way, you know, the land, these streets, these neighborhoods were in intended to be used. So it's definitely an issue. It's, it's one that I think about as someone who I'll admit it is, you know, near and dear to kind of the peace and quiet that I maintain in my lovely suburban neighborhood at the moment. You can judge me if you want to. That's fine. <laughs> but really, I think we should be thoughtful about how we use land as a society. And now, you know, we have these intelligent algorithms making decisions for us. That seems great. But I think there's something that's lost when we give full control to these algorithms that don't see the entire picture. Yeah. Well, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is an excellent case for responsible use of AI, right? You know, if Waze had pre-thought this out and said, how is this going to affect what people who are not drivers are experiencing or the people who live on the roads where we're directing people to, they might have nipped this earlier, right? And been able to say, okay, Waze will reroute you, but only if it's not a residential street. Yeah, I think you would probably argue, correct me if I'm wrong, that responsible AI kind of one way perhaps to even define it is that it's AI that's serving not just the individual, but a broader constituency. So in this case, right now, Waze is just thinking, how can I get Will or the driver to where they want to go as fast as possible and not thinking about the collective? Kind of going back to this tragedy of the commons problem we've referenced earlier. So really, I think what we need, one of the things we need here is to have AI that's thinking not just selfishly, but how to the decisions that I make as an AI impact society writ large as opposed to the single user of my technology. Responsible AI is not just about the direct beneficiary of the AI. It's about how other people who interact with that person who's getting the AI are also being a part of that system. And I think that kind of brings back the city bike example, right? So Anna runs out the door, it's raining, and she gets to the station, all the bikes are gone. Well, Maybe if City Bike has done their algorithms correctly, they can sort of preempt that 
and make sure that the bikes get in on time so that Anna isn't forced to then jump into a cab and sit in traffic or add to congestion in different ways. The thing that makes me optimistic about this is that this problem is quantifiable, right? So you can actually model this and say, you know, if we're routing everyone off of I-95 onto this quiet back road, if we're doing this for everyone whose phone is turned on right now, we know what's going to happen. And I think, again, as these algorithms get smarter, they can start to foresee that and not just think about kind of the next best action, but think about the next best action for the collective and the system as a whole. Yes, but it's not the algorithms that have to be smarter. It's the humans who design them have to actually start thinking about these things. Trevaney, previously we talked about that Amazon Alexa microwave, right? So Alexa, obviously a lot of the magic of that technology is in speech recognition. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand how that all works. So I was wondering or hoping if you could explain speech recognition to me in English, please. Yeah. So speech recognition is actually one of the more complex machine learning use cases for a variety of reasons. But it essentially starts out by taking some kind of audio. So you say, hey, Alexa, and that audio gets converted into shorter chunks and the actual wave, you know, because audio is a wave gets turned into a digital format, right? A series of numbers that can then be processed to form the underlying structure of the sound, which in turn can be understood as sounds and words, right? So are you with me so far? Yeah, so that's pretty complicated. You got to take sound, convert it to numbers. And then once you have those numbers, you got to convert numbers to words. Exactly. It is challenging. And so a lot of great research and work has already been done, obviously, because we have things like Google and Amazon Alexa. But essentially taking those sounds and being able to pull out or extract patterns that approximate certain words then allows the next step of the speech recognition to come into play, right? So just getting the data or getting the audio into some sort of numeric data, numeric and word data is the first step. Once you've done that, you can either do it really simply and have like a lookup. So, hey, Alexa, when you hear that, some backend code says, ping, you've called Alexa. Or it could be something far more complicated, like play my favorite music. Well, so now Alexa needs to understand what does play my favorite music mean, right? And how do you add meaning to that? What's the semantic underlying tone of that? And how do you use it? So I know that I didn't go deep into it here, but the main idea with speech recognition is that we're converting audio into a digitized format that can then be either used in a very simple lookup algorithm or in a more complex natural language processing algorithm. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that in English. Back to Anna. She's sent city bikes to the office. She's sitting at her desk. She's got her laptop open and she's writing some great Gmails to you and I about this said podcast. Love it. And the technology that she's using to help her is Gmail's Smart Compose. Are you familiar with this? I am. And it really freaks me out. Yeah. So you're not alone. Uh, there's been a ton of people on Twitter talking about how scarily accurate Gmail's Smart Compose functionality is. I'm sure... Pretty much all of our listeners are familiar, uh, but the idea is that you start typing a sentence and then Gmail kind of predicts what the rest of the sentence will be. You can simply tab complete and just accept their suggestions. And so I want to talk about this idea because it seems, again, simple. It seems good in that it enhances productivity. But one of the things that's so interesting about Smart Compose is just what it means to be creative now and in the future. As we have AI that can enhance our own cognition, 
you know, how do we choose AI suggestions or when do we choose to, you know, say what we truly think and ignore the AI? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with this every time I see the Smart Compose because... So you, you resist it? Well, no, because I'm lazy. So I hit, oh, yeah. Okay. So I hit tab and I'm like, fine, all right, hi, Will and Anna, you know. I'm lazy too. I, I hit tab too. Right. So I, I think this really freaks me out because there's this sort of trade-off between being lazy and being most authentically you, right? So Google has figured out, or, or this Gmail Compose feature has figured out that I love to say, sounds good, right? And so now when I get an email from someone saying XYZ, I get this auto-suggestion of sounds good. Now, me, myself, Trevaney, I could say, I'm not going to respond that. I'm going to write back, hi, so-and-so. I'm really happy to hear that. We should definitely proceed in this way. Or I could be the lazy person that I am and just click, sounds good, and let that email get sent out. I never have to think about it again. In doing that, I'm telling the algorithm, yeah, that's what I would say, sure. And so then the next time around, the algorithm is going to resuggest that to me. And then I think to myself, okay, I'll just say it, right? It's a split second to decide to whether be lazy or come up with my own thing. I think I and a lot of others are going to default towards sort of a laziness. So in some ways now, I'm not even dictating what the algorithm knows about me. And rather, the algorithm is now deciding my behavior. Just feeding off your laziness. I mean, I think that gives me optimism and that if you actually take time in an age of AI to be authentic or to put an effort into composing an email or composing a tweet or whatever it may be, at least, even if it's not better than the AI, the sap in me thinks that somehow it will be authentically human and that will be beautiful and that will have quality. And I think genuinely that'll come across, right? Like, we're still at the point where humans, if they take time, most humans, if they take time to write a thoughtful email that's custom, that's meant for the intended recipient, like people sense that and they know it wasn't written by AI. And so just let it be known, Trevaney, at least as I consider it, your investment, taking the extra few seconds to write your own Trevaney authored email, I think that people will appreciate that. Okay, I'll keep that in mind next time I email you. <laughs> so we've reached the end of Anna's workday. And she's heading out and just out of curiosity decides to pull up one of these many dating apps on her on her phone. And so here, again, you think, okay, it's a dating app. You get to choose. You're just swiping left or right or up or down. I don't know. I've never used these apps. These apps don't want to just show you anybody, right? They want to show you people that you actually want to meet or date or whatever it might be. And so even though we think that people have control over their swipes, right, or who they're selecting... In fact, there is an AI algorithm behind it trying to show the right person to you. Yeah, and, and this is obviously, I think, a theme of today's episode, just this idea of a filter bubble or whatever people call it. But you get stuck in the trap of what's familiar. You know, mm. you, you like certain people, you're attracted to certain people. The algorithm intelligently, in some ways, learns what you like and then just regurgitates that, keeps those people coming. And so this can obviously be a problem, I think. I mean, it's, it's kind of up for debate, but I think it's a problem, right? I like to live in a world where people are open-minded, they're open to new possibilities. And so if we're living in a world that's you know strictly governed by collaborative filtering algorithms that are just showing you what you liked yesterday, and assuming that that's what you'll like again today, we're going to get stuck in, in a world where things become too homogenized, things become too boring. It's not a future I want to live in. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine Anna puts on her profile that she likes rock climbing. Next thing you know, every single person presented to her is standing on the edge of a cliff, right? 
having just rock climbed it. And so doesn't that get boring? And doesn't that just reinforce the same behavior that the algorithm picked up on the first time? Yeah, and I think this is where the designers of the algorithms need to be thoughtful uh, and also organizations need to be responsible. So in theory, uh, people who work for, for dating apps can write in and tell us if we're wrong on this. But I would imagine that, you know, Swiping right is a metric of success for a particular dating app. If, Trevane, if you open up the dating app and you swipe right five times in a row, like I, the designer of that app, have done something well. That's good. But I think if that's your only metric of success, if you don't risk, you know, being wrong, showing someone to Trevane that Trevane doesn't like, that's going to be an issue. So one thing I'm curious about in the future of these sorts of applications is how the designers incorporate some degree of randomness. Because that's the way life was before, right? You just walk down the street and yeah, like you tended to meet the same people because you lived in the same neighborhood, but who's to say that someone random, quote unquote random, couldn't show up in your neighborhood, you meet them, you fall in love and you know you live some wonderful life happily ever after. There's a random element to normal day-to-day life. And I think algorithms haven't quite figured out yet how to incorporate randomness into their behavior. Yeah, like good intentional randomness. Exactly. Yeah, so this reminds me of something we talked about a while ago, like about prioritizing optimization of a model. So what are you trying to actually optimize for? If you're only trying to optimize for a million of these swipes on the right, then yeah, you're just going to keep showing someone the same thing over and over again. But if you're trying to actually optimize for true connection and like being surprised by the beauty of different personalities in the world, then maybe you will start intentionally adding in these randomness and other things. You know, I met my husband the old-fashioned way, Will. What's that? At a bar in New Jersey. (laughs) So Anna's back home, safe asleep in bed, and you and I are here trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with all this AI in our lives. Yeah, it's not easy. Right? Like, I don't know. There are some things that are really great. Like, I do like predictive text stuff or like, you know, when I mistype a word and when I'm texting someone, it's nice that there's this AI to autocorrect me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we're seeing this growth. That's why we're having this podcast. Like this stuff is nice. It's cool. It's delightful. uh, And that's all great. But then it's also terrifying because now algorithms are helping sort of dictate my behavior. And, And hopefully episodes like this, you know, we're doing some small service to the world in that as people become aware of the algorithms that are, quote unquote, powering their lives, as someone who really thinks fondly of the power of education in our society, right, just knowing what's going on and then reflecting on that and then choosing with agency how to live your life, like that, I think is just going to lead to a better future. But so the more people know about these things, first of all, then second of all, we can start thinking, you know, do we accept them and do we reject them? Do we embrace them? Or are we going to think about how we can live differently? Okay, it's that time again for the banana fact. In spirit with this episode, I wanted to talk about the birth of spam. In fact, it wasn't, you know, started in the 90s with all of the email spam we were getting. In fact, the first unsolicited electronic message started in 1864 when con artists used Western Union to telegraph these like shady investment offers to people. So it's been around for a while. (laughs) That's all we've got for today in the world of banana data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. But in the meantime, subscribe to the banana data newsletter to read these articles and more like them. We've got links for all the articles we discussed today in the show notes. All right. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure, Trevaney. It's been great, Will. See you next time.